Hello world, what is up? Welcome to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and on today's episode, we're talking about anxiety. start this one off with kind of a heavy personal story, if that's all right. In the summer of 2019, I woke up one day and my thumb was kind of tingly, you know, pins and needles, like I'd fallen asleep or something. By the end of that week, I'd lost sensation on the entire right side of my body. And not too long after that, after a myriad of scans, tests and whatnot, I was diagnosed with MS. Now, I'm glossing over a lot of details here, but don't worry, I'm fine. I've got a great doctor. I'm treating it. That's not the point. I share this because it was that moment in my life amidst all these physical challenges and scariness that anxiety really broke through the fourth wall for me and was no longer just a feeling that I experienced in fleeting moments before a big test or a live show. You see, before all of that, I thought of anxiety as something that like Tony Soprano had to deal with. And yeah, for sure, people around me discussed it and I was aware, but I didn't have to worry about it. You know, I was fine. Uh, but all of a sudden I was having many panic attacks and whatever reason refused to believe that my mental hurdles could manifest physically. And so I thought the shortness of breath and the dizziness and everything I was feeling was a new MS symptom and I was spiraling. Now. Like I said, don't worry. I got a hold on most of that now and I'm getting better at it. And in retrospect, clearly I'd been navigating anxiety my whole life. It's ridiculous to have thought otherwise. But following my MS diagnosis, my awareness and understanding transformed dramatically. And thank God, honestly, because I can't imagine having to go through this pandemic without the tools I started to develop leading up to lockdown. Anyway, I wanted to start just by recognizing that anxiety in general for a lot of people can be a sensitive and heavy subject, myself included. Uh, every day I learn something new and today I'm sure we're going to learn a whole bunch of stuff together because once again I'm surrounded by some incredibly talented and smart individuals who are going to help answer and raise some big questions around this particular emotion, I have no doubt. Uh, joining me here in the lab, Dr. Alan Cowan and Daniel Credit Cobb. Welcome back, both of you. Lovely to see you as always. Uh, and our extra special guest today, internationally renowned professor of clinical psychology, a pioneering researcher in the field of bereavement and trauma, chair of the Department of Counseling and Clinical Psychology at Teachers College, Columbia University. His latest book, The End of Trauma, How the New Science of Resilience is Changing How We Think About PTSD, is available now where all books are sold. Please welcome to the show. George Bonanno is here. George, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing, sir? Uh, I'm, I'm fine, Matt. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, so thank you for showing up. It's so great to have you here with us. We're excited to have you on today. Uh, we're going to have a great discussion. I want to jump right on in. But before I do, what kind of host would I be without checking in on my co-hosts and friends? Danielle Allen, how are you guys doing? You doing all right? Doing great. Thank you, Matt. Very good. Doing Danielle? Well. Always doing wonderful well. to hear. Always wonderful to hear. I will report, given the topic, always have a tiny low-level anxiety before we actually start rolling. Then the conversation takes us away and we're fine, but I'm naming it to tame it, baby. I love it. I love it for sure. They, uh, I When it came time for me to choose what I wanted to share at the opening, I went for the big one, but there is, yeah, there is like a baseline of anxiety that is uh, constantly active for me these days that I've learned to uh, work with. And, and we'll get into that. Uh, let's jump right in. Uh, when I can, I like to come out of the gate hot and get a nice definition of the feeling that we're discussing. So we kind of have a better idea of what we're working with here. Uh, Alan, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. How would you define anxiety, sir? Wow, that's a tough <clears> one. <throat> I mean, it's it, in the literature, it lumps together a lot of things. People study stress, worry, um, and the chronic anxiety that people feel that you've been talking about, the anxiety you feel when you're about to get hurt. 
<laughs> that kind of thing. I, they're definitely all related. Um, mm -hmm. And you see it in people's responses to anxiety drugs and you can cause, you know, non-human primates to feel anxiety and give them anxiety drugs and it reduces it. So they're clearly all related neurologically and behaviorally. Um, but I don't know that I can come up with a definition broad enough <laughs> right yeah. now to encompass all of those things. I don't know. Maybe George can give it a shot. I appreciate it. I was going to throw to George after you to see what he thought. George, how about you, sir? How would you define anxiety? Well, that it is a rather elusive uh, topic. I study primarily how people respond to really horrible things that happen to them, like mm -hmm. an MS diagnosis or like a car accident or, you know, uh, just about any kind of other bad thing you could imagine. So I always, I'm always studying these reactions after one of, one of these things happen. Anxiety is, you know, it overlaps a lot with what everybody knows as PTSD. And there's, they share similar, they're similar. Um, you know, anxiety is, you know, the, the classic piece of anxiety is this sort of undifferentiated foreboding mm. that something mm. as bad as, as could happen at any moment when there's no particular evidence for it. And we see that in some people after these events happen, people struggle with it. But it, it overdoes, as uh, as Alan pointed out, it struggle. It uh, it overlaps with so many other concepts, at least yeah. a little bit. Totally. And uh, and and for, <coughs> forgive me to the listeners because I know I tend to ask this question a lot, but it's something I'm genuinely very curious about in regards to Alan's work. When we talk about especially something like anxiety, I, I immediately want to know how you and your team were able to uh, reproduce it or observe it in such a way to create the data sets and 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 get the information that you use to inform your emotion maps. So it's something that we struggle to put all the words together and just define. How do you guys then? Uh, observe it and recreate it and, and 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 use that and find that information how does that work for you guys alan so one way is to get people to self-report anxiety and compare it to other emotions so situating it in a broader space we can see it sort of adjacent to fear it's adjacent to excitement um, and those often overlap and relief generally there's anxiety when you respond to something tense followed by either relief or something worse something negative depending on what the outcome is but anxiety is this moment of tension and, and in you know film, it's suspense, right? And so we can recognize that as a state that we all go through and it feels like butterflies in the stomach and tingling and all of that. Um, there's an autonomic uh, component of it, increased heart rates. There's a facial expression that we associate with anxiety um, that usually only occurs when people are really anxious. <laughs> And then um, in moments of sort of more persistent anxiety that's lower level, you see something called displacement behaviors. And you see this in humans and several other animals. And it's uh, scratching or picking at your nails, you're biting um, your nails or, you know, all these different things that we do. Something um, we'd call like a nervous tick or something like that? Yeah. Almost? Um, yeah. And well, nervous tick kind of, you, you have the association that it's something people, someone does all the time. Whereas mm, okay. With, with displacement behaviors, it's more more specific to when you're feeling anxious, more specific to when you're feeling stressed. Okay. Um, and that is one way to look at it. I mean, when we study anxiety, we're looking at facial expression, vocal expression. We certainly see it there. Um, when you're looking at somebody <clears throat> over a Zoom, I think it's difficult to see the displacement behaviors. But when you're in person with somebody, I think you can actually see them. Um, and, and it's quite evident and you, you end up comforting that person. 
is it mm. difficult to spot it over Zoom because this is already just such a there's such a weird layer of of being removed from the or is it just the fact that I'm framed very specifically and you can't see it? Why do you think it's harder to spot in this format? Well, I think with displacement behaviors, it's called displacement because you're kind of suppressing something. You don't want other people to necessarily see that you're anxious, but you're also seeing yourself on the screen. And maybe there's displacement behaviors happening off the screen, but there's a sort of self-consciousness induced by Zoom that I think erases some of the naturalness of emotional expression in everyday life. Hmm. Interesting. Um, what I'm hearing as we're talking about the definition of anxiety and how you're sort of recreating it and manufacturing it in the lab and whatnot, it's, it, I'm not incorrect in saying it's tied to uncertainty, right? There's a level of uncertainty involved that yeah. sort of triggers it. Yeah, I see you nodding. Okay, good. Okay, so I am learning. I'm under. Okay, I'm grasping it so far. <laughs> that's good. That's encouraging. Uh, George, as someone, you know, uh, your research, you talked just a second ago about studying trauma and, and loss, in the wake of which there is often a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, how does anxiety pop up uh, for you in your work and be it in what you're observing or, 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 or experimenting and things of that nature? Well, that's a really interesting question because um, – what we find, you know, the, the research I, I do tends to show that most people are ultimately okay pretty soon after they've had, mm-hmm. but just about everybody, not completely everybody, I would say, you know, 85% of people exposed to, to one of these events. And I mean, these are things out of the ordinary that, you know, I, I tend to think of them as things we just don't want to happen that mm-hmm. have happened. And they're often really threatening, sometimes often violent and life-threatening. When those events happen, just about everybody experiences at least a short-term reaction. We call it traumatic stress, but it definitely has an anxiety component. Mm-hmm. It's a sense that this could happen again, um, this, this event, um, you know, and it intrudes into our consciousness, even when we don't want it to. We have these, um, you know, unbidden images, a thought and memory and an image, a sound flashes into our mind regularly after the event happens. We have nightmares and we have this very serious, you know, level of arousal, level of, of uh, definitely foreboding that this just happened. It could happen again. And I'm totally on edge right now. And just about everybody experiences that. Sometimes yeah. for as short as a few hours, usually a few days, and sometimes a couple of weeks. And that, that's wow. completely natural. It's a, it's a really natural reaction. Something that you talk about in your work that I found um really hopeful is, I mean, so other side of sadness actually came out the year that my brother died. So I'm grateful to you for that because it helped me as an opportunity rather than as, you know, the kind of face on the floor thing that it can be. And, um, anyway, so the, the idea that joy and focus can, uh, live within the experience of grief was really liberating. It's why looking at Alan's maps and knowing that there's um, an intimate space between excitement and anxiety. The question that comes up in me and something that you've talked about in your work is uh, this concept of post-traumatic growth, using strengths to overcome adversity. And I would just, I mean, looking at where we are right now too, we're not in an individual moment of grief and adversity. We're actually in a collective moment of grief and adversity that peaks and troughs for all of us, perhaps at different points, but just your advice on, on how to be with these things based on all the stories you've heard. I'm just, I would love to hear uh, how post-traumatic growth can be an option for us. Okay. Um, Well, I'm, I'm a little bit, um, 
Danielle, I'm a little bit um, uneasy with the concept. Largely, this is more of an academic thing. I just don't like mm. the measurement. There are measurement issues mm. that we never really get at it, and the measurement is very poor. And you know what people are so measuring isn't really growth, but there is enough evidence that shows that there is growth. It's very real, and I mean, I, I can attest in my own life I've experienced growth. And I think where that comes from. Well, first of all, you, you talked about the bereavement research. And, and first of all, I'm sorry to hear about your brother. That must have been difficult. Very sorry to hear about that. Um, but what we've seen in our bereavement research is that people spontaneously show these positive bits of, you know, happiness and joy. And this is work I did with Dacker Keltner back in the, um, in the 90s. And we've continued to look at these kind of things. So people show you know, bits of joy, even when they don't know they are. And that's what's kind of amazing. At the time, mm -hmm. it was relatively unknown. And people assume, you know, when I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling anxious from or nervous about what just happened to me, that they feel that way all the time. But in fact, it's impossible to feel that way all the time. Our mind-body system just won't, won't it's just not possible. We, we'd, we'd collapse from that, that kind of exertion. But we have these moments where we shift into, you know, positive experiences. And I think the way that I understand how we, um, how we, how that happens, that we move on and how we, we focus on positive things is, is really, there's a, a broad model that I, I won't get into now that is part of my book, it's the new book, and it's something I've researched, which is really flexibility. And flexibility is how we sort of work it out. And every situation Every challenge is unique, and we have to kind of confront it. And once we start doing that, it takes some effort to do that. There's, there's lots of different pieces, you know, to that. But one of them is a mindset. When we get into that, you know, that sense of I, I can do this, I, I will do this, so what do I need to do? When we do that, we immediately stop. Well, I shouldn't say immediately, but we stop focusing on the long-term threat. You know, this thing happened mm -hmm. to me. God, I don't, I was so, why did this have to happen? And that's just a kind of a, you know, I guess that's necessary for at least a little bit to get ourselves going. But over the, it, it really doesn't get us much further than that because it only makes us feel hopeless. But as soon as we start focusing on what we have to do, we almost immediately start feeling better. You know, we almost, we start to feel like I can deal with this. I, I, I can solve this problem right now. And I've solved that problem. So what's the next problem I have to solve? And it's a sort of a chain of things. And that gives people a sense of mastery. It gives people a sense of, of you know, I, I can do this. And that immediately makes people feel, I suppose you could call it growth right then and there. You know, there's mm -hmm. a sense of, I can get through this. You know, and I think people have done this throughout the pandemic, too. You know, there's a little bit of a sense, a little weariness when people are saying, oh, yeah, another one to get get through, right? Because they don't seem to stop, but, you know, yeah. and we're all a little tired, but we've, we've done remarkably well during the pandemic. You know, human beings have done remarkably well. The, um, the approach you describe of sort of focusing on what's in front of me, what do I have to do next is I, I connect to that very much so. And that's how I got through not just um, the story I shared in the beginning, but a story I shared uh, a couple episodes ago about uh, my family had a very traumatic, uh, there was a house fire and it was very overwhelming. And it was just, 
I jumped into it's been a, it's been a rough couple of years over in the Forte household. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, but I the way I've jumped into it is I've what do we got to do? How do we handle this? What are the steps? What's the procedure? What's this? And I've struggled with as as much as that's helped me cope with the situations in front of me. I've also often worried, am I avoiding something by focusing just on what to do and what's in front of me? Is there something waiting for me once I run out of things to do? And at the risk of turning this podcast episode into my own personal therapy session, I'd love to get <laughs> thoughts on that idea and that concept because it has worked for me. But there is this looming thing in the back of my mind of like, all right, well, you're busy now, but at some point you won't be. And, and then what am I going to do? Will I then have to confront all these things that I haven't? Have you seen anything like that? What are your thoughts on that idea? Um, it, I, I, I think that's a common reaction. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes from the bias that's inherent in all of these topics, um, especially highly aversive events, you know, potentially traumatic events. Um, a lot of understanding came from the clinical world, from mental health professionals. Now, I don't mean to dump on mental health professionals. I am a mental health professional, I suppose. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, and you know, I train mental health professionals in, in, in our program. It's a clinical psychology program. But the original work that was on these highly aversive events, these traumatic events, potentially traumatic events, came really from clinical observation from mental health professionals. Even the research was very much mental, mental health focused. And that led to, there are a lot of biases inherent in that perspective. Therapists and mental health researchers tend to see primarily people who've been exposed to these events and can't get over them. They don't tend to see people who are resilient. They, people who are resilient don't go to therapy typically for an aversive event. And what we found, even in our research, when we, we had people who looked pretty good after one of these events, they looked resilient, we had a hard time getting them to come back because they thought, well, you don't want to see me. I'm fine, right? I don't want to ruin your research. <laughs> so that, but that perspective led to this kind of general idea that trickled out into the public that if you're not confronting it all the time, you're, you're avoiding it. But the research is is unmistakable on this side that that avoidance and at times of distraction suppression those are all highly adaptive and if you did nothing but that you know um that would be maybe cause for concern but but if it's it's as a sort of momentary or you know using that tool it's a tool and it's an yeah. effective tool yeah is it a, is that uh would that fall under a coping mechanism is that what that is, is it, um or is that different well, I mean, there's, there are coping mechanisms and there are emotion regulation mechanisms. I try to eschew those titles because, okay. you know, people do whatever they do, you know. And um, the, so, I mean, it is sort of a coping mechanism. It is an emotion regulation mechanism. And it could be whatever else you want it to be. Like, say, getting drunk one evening just because you want to is useful at times, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't know if that's... Is that what you call list. an ugly coping mechanism? <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, yes, I, I used the term ugly coping back in the first book on the, the book about bereavement, and I've continued to work with it, the idea, because situations are so different, you know, they're so varied, and in some situations, you just have to use something in, in that particular moment that's you wouldn't even think it was healthy and other people don't think it was healthy, but it's going to work right at this moment. It's what you need because the goal is really just to get past the difficult part. Hmm. And, you know, if you, if you 
did this, uh, what, I, what I called ugly coping, these things all the time, then you maybe be, you know, kind of have to question that. But at any given moment, it's all, the goal is really, as John Lennon, I love the way John Lennon put it, whatever gets you through the night. Hmm. All right, all right, you know, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think legally that's as much of the lyrics as you're allowed to say. <laughs> we owe it. Yeah. Point taken. Um, well, sort of to, to jump off of that, in, in that, you're saying like, oh, so if that's what you need to do, if that whatever you need to get through the night, if that can anxiety, can it be good? I feel like there's a negative connotation with anxiety. And I think of anxiety, I just have, like I said, the negative, I think negative thoughts, but can, can it be a good thing? Can it be reframed? Can it be harnessed in some way? Or am I thinking about it the wrong way? But the simple question is, can anxiety be good? Well, um, yes, I think that's been around for a long time. I mean, mm -hmm. I just was, um, one of my students did her dissertation today and she told me she was so she was very anxious about it and i mentioned to her you know if you weren't anxious i would be concerned <laughs> because dissertations are a big deal and a little bit of anxiety in that that moment is i think very useful because it gets you geared up gets you focused it's not pleasant but if you put it in that context it's it's a natural response and it you know um it's useful at that moment for I'm sure. actually curious, Alan, about when you're what you see in your mapping, because like what we were talking about earlier, this idea that anxiety and excitement are adjacent to each other. Something that I really loved in the mind search that was coming out of Stanford and UT Austin, I think David Yeager, Chris Bryan, Dweck were working on this together. This idea that the story that you're telling yourself or your construal, of course, is is the difference between those those two spaces. And so I'm just curious what both of you think, but Alan, specifically computationally, the way you see it cranking out, it's like, is it the story you tell yourself that makes the difference, your construal of that, whether stress becomes debilitating or enhancing, whether anxiety perhaps does the same thing, given that's what's agitating the system? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We see the same people respond to certain stimuli with anxiety and other people with excitement. So certainly there is there are individual differences that will determine, you know, whether somebody can do something positively or negatively. And generally, they're both in response to uncertainty. Sometimes even danger can be exciting. People like putting themselves in danger. There's videos of people sort of hanging off of tall buildings. And sometimes that makes people extremely uncomfortable. And other people love watching those videos and can watch them all day. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think Spike Jones and uh, oh my god Johnny Knoxville's uh, whole series Jackass was based on that adjacency. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and so <laughs> that's true. Uh, what, what makes them, of course, tense is that they're real. You go to movies all the time, and usually it's exciting when things like that happen. Um, generally speaking, when we watch people watch those videos, uh, their the, the, the reaction is not so bad until they see somebody actually fall off the building and then the rest of the videos are much more anxiety inducing for them. So I think it really depends on um, your experience, how you construe the context, what you construe is like the different possibilities to consider. And some people are just looking for what can go wrong all the time. Of course, we need that in our society. So <laughs> there's some room for that, not only on the personal level, because it can get you out of bad circumstances, but also on the social level, because somebody needs to be worrying about the worst possible outcome. 
And we, yeah, all of these, you know, every negative emotion, every positive emotion is useful in some way. At least it was useful to us. <laughs> so that's a perfect segue because that was something I was super curious about, but I don't want to cut. George, did you have any uh, thoughts or in response to Danielle before I pivot us away from this? Well, um, I, I don't know if this is exactly uh, uh, on the spot in response to what Al just said and, and what Danielle just said, but um, when we do these d- different patterns after a potential traumatic event, we always see most people are resilient, but some people are, are always unable to return to baseline. They're always chronically distressed and some people mm-hmm. recover, but we've seen these patterns. And I think uh, what so, riffing off what Alan just said, there's might be something adaptive for the species about this because we've seen it in, in laboratory mice and, you know, other types of, of non-human anim- uh, animals or basically and uh, there's something about that, that it it's, must be useful on some level for the species, for some people just to, you know, be overwhelmed. So they tell us this is a bad situation, you know. And so it's a very interesting idea, very interesting topic. Yeah, it sounds like we might have already covered everything I was going to get out of this, but I'll, I'll, I'll squeeze this <laughs> orange and see if there's some more juice. But <laughs> keep me honest here, Alan. This is one of the first feelings we've tackled on this show that as far as I can tell, it doesn't actually serve to, to, in any obvious way to bring people together. You know, we talked about the evolutionary advantage to awe and desire and horror and how that brings people together. But I feel like anxiety kind of can cause a person to isolate and avoid others as opposed to bring people together. So if we have any more thoughts on the usefulness or the evolutionary advantage, I'd love to, to, to open that up a little bit more if you got anything in there. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, as George was saying, there is room for people to be sort of the first alarm um, when, you know, there might be a lion in the bush Interesting. and, you know, the monkeys are in the field. Some monkey is going to be the first monkey to start yelping and maybe 95% of the time they're wrong and everybody ignores them. <laughs> but it's useful to have, um, you know, what's the chance of precipitation today? <laughs> like, you know, some monkeys that are more attuned to potential threats and some monkeys that are less attuned. And so I think diversity in the levels of anxiety is probably something that's to our evolutionary advantage. Why did monkey in the bush not catch on like canary in a coal mine? Is it because there is an alliteration? (laughs) Well, the canary usually doesn't do well at the end of that story. (laughs) I I, I was picking up the same thing. I was like, monkey in a bush is definitely an expression. Uh, We're going to make that catch. It just started. (laughs) Yeah. It's a more positive take. Do you think that sort of starts to dovetail into the other thing that I was curious about, which is why uh, some people have a harder time than others? Obviously, I don't think there's a, 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 a blanket answer to this question. If we had it, we'd already have some sort of miracle treatment to help everybody be where they want to be. But I, I do wonder why is it I can abate a lot of my anxiety either through exercise or tasking and, and being productive, but other people, that that doesn't work for them. They they don't have that luxury. Or it can it becomes OCD. It becomes other things. Do we know um, sort of what separates and why it's it it is different ways for different folks and why there is such a great diversity in how we uh, experience anxiety? Well, one of the things that we've been working on in research is what we call repertoire. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty clear some people have a larger repertoire of, of behaviors and strategies they can use than others. And um, there's, that's very, very clear in the research or individual differences. But it's also possible for people to develop new skills and new strategies. Mm-hmm. It just, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to do when you're in the middle of something. 
it's a lot easier to do when 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 your life is calmer. Hmm. Um, but so, and you know, and, and I think many people don't think about doing that, and then something happens, and they they live with what they've got to use. But right. I think that's really the key: is that just some people have more strategies at their disposal for whatever reason. It, is and, it? Oh, go on. Yeah, what were you going to say? I don't know. It's okay. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, have you found a a correlation between one's level of resiliency and the likelihood of them uh, suffering from some kind of anxiety disorder? Is resiliency directly correlated to their repertoire? Um, Well, I don't think of resiliency as a thing people have. Okay. I think of resilience as an outcome. Resilience is what you are if if you've endured something effectively. Because you only can be resilient to in in relation to something. I mean, there there is a kind of there are a lot of myths about resilience. One of them is that you have like the the magic pieces of it, and then you're resilient. Mm. The, the key traits, and there's no end to these kind of ideas. There are five traits, or seven, or eight, or three. You see them in the media a lot, but you see them also in some of the professional literature. But in fact, when we do research on what correlates with resilience, the outcome. There's no end to the things we can measure. We've, we've really found out probably 20 things uh, right now that correlate with resilience. When I was preparing for this book, I did a quick Google search of, of the traits of resilience and I came up with 50 different things in, in, in less than an hour. And wow. I just stopped there, right? Because <laughs> it's kind of preposterous. So we ask always, what is the evidence for these things? And there's a, there are quite a few that we found evidence for. But what's really remarkable about, remarkable about this is that almost none of these traits does very much to predict who will be resilient. They all have what, in statistical terms, we say they have small effects. And, you know, we've even tried, we've done a number of machine learning studies where we had, you know, 70 or 80 variables to predict the, who's resilient. We have things that you can't even see, like blood. We get blood and we can measure immune functioning and stress. And even things like blood chloride levels, which are all to some extent correlated. And when we do these computational models, we get a better prediction, but it's still not very good because all the individual pieces are small. And that trouble, that um, dilemma, I should say, I, I, I call that the flexibility paradox. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The resilience paradox. It's um, it's dinner time here in New York, so I'm a little bit <laughs> a little bit depleted. Um, we call it, I call it the resilience paradox, which is you know the fact that we can identify all these things and we still can't predict who will be resilient and who not when something bad happens. And that led me to 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 see the links to flexibility. It's all about knowing what's happening to you and what you need to do at any given moment, what you're able to do. And almost invariably, what we try when something bad happens to us doesn't necessarily work because Hmm. the situation is so diverse. So we try something else. And that's part of the key to the whole sort of um, the whole flexibility idea is that, you know, you try something until something works and then you, you know, move on to the, you know, you move on and you, you come up with another problem tomorrow and you try something else. And you could try what you tried yesterday. And it may or may not work, but then you have to kind of take stock and pay attention. And that, so it's a, it's a complex process. It's really a process. Yeah. And you have the, the larger, you, the more things you have at your disposal, the more strategies, the more, um, you know, uh, the more of a behavioral repertoire you have. And again, this is where you can engage in coping ugly. Sometimes you'll say, okay, I'm just going to do this for now. 
I'm just going to get drunk or I'm just going to go to a movie and stop thinking about it completely for two hours and go out with my friends. It will still be there, but I'll deal with it, you know, later. And that gives us some relief, you know. So it's yeah. a it's an elaborated process of trying to find what works. So is your I'm so curious about this because I'd I'd actually read about the your you know the naming of the resilience paradox, the flexibility mindset. And something I was curious about is so whatever you call it, what, and maybe it's the repertoire building, but it's like in those times of calm, like you said, how do you develop, how can you cultivate things that can serve you when, you know, when, when the thing goes down? And so I'm curious, the kind of practical advice for not necessarily like being a, a doomsday prepper in the emotional space, (laughs) but more like what, what, what do we do when we have a little space that, that can serve us well in the times when we don't. Yeah. That's it's I'm I'm glad you brought it up, Danielle. So um, it, 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 it is possible to to develop all of these pieces and, um, and, and it isn't only as a, to prepare for doomsday because these, these, these behaviors, these strategies, these, these, whatever you want to call them, the mindset and the sequence, they're applicable to daily life. And and really, I think at the time I began to figure this out or put it together, because I've been doing research on these pieces separately for a long time. And at one day, I don't know when exactly, I began to see how they fit together. And that was a little bit of an epiphany for me. But then I, I could see using them my all my own life. I'd be, you know, unhappy about something. As I mentioned, maybe I didn't mention it on the show, that I, I have had and raising children in New York City, and that comes with the financial, you know, concerns and all kinds of other things. And you know, there are times when you're feeling, I'm feeling pretty bad. What is going on? And then you begin to realize, okay, well, what is happening right now? And what is it that's making me feel this way? And what can I do about it? And you know, did I try? What what can I do? What am I able to do? And is it working? So all all of these things are are learnable. And, cultiv- and they can be cultivated because we actually learn them as children. We learn to say, for example, differentiate different situations as children. My, my favorite, uh, the classic uh, example is, is when a child is told, you use your inside voice here, you know, and that's essentially the, the caregiver, the parent or the teacher is essentially saying, this is a different situation. So we learn that is is into adulthood we continually do this all the time. We just don't or we're just not aware of it. I get on the subway almost every day. Subways are are, are uh, can be mean and, and lean at types of events, at types of uh, context. <laughs> and especially during the pandemic when things have gotten a little bit chaotic in New York City during the pandemic. You get on a subway car, every New Yorker immediately looks around the subway car and does a quick assessment. You know, is this, should I sit over here? Is it going to be okay? Should I put my head down? Should I, you know, and, and you can always, I live right by Columbia University where I teach. And every year the new students show up and you can see them on the subway. They don't know yet. You know, they're, they're not paying attention. Um, and those, that's really just monitoring the context. We do it without being aware of it, but becoming aware of it already gives us kind of a leg up and we can begin to try to, you know, enhance that skill. Um, the flexibility mindset is really just an attitude about, you know, getting ourselves into the game. I like to put it that way. It's really, it's, it can be, it's, I think of it in terms of optimism, challenge appraisal, you know, thinking mm-hmm. of events as threats as challenges and mm-hmm. confidence in coping. 
It doesn't have to be those three pieces, but they work together really nicely. And together they kind of form this mindset where it says, I can do this. I'll, I'll do what it takes. But we can anyhow, any way we do that, get into that mindset, you know, is is workable. Yeah. And then the sequence is no, no, the no, sequence is the, is the steps that I just described of, you know, re- reviewing the context, having you go looking at your repertoire, and correcting. And all of those pieces um, I, in the book, I suggested some, subject, some, suggested some self-talk to go along with all of those, riffing off the work of um, Ethan Cross, I think is really nice work. And, um, you know, self-talk's been around for a long time, and, and so we can practice self-talk and you know, there's research showing we can build all those things if, you know, if with a little bit of effort. So it just takes, I think, partially being aware of this is this is this is how it works for most people. You're probably using it, too, but you just don't know it. I'm, so I'm curious, actually, and I don't know Ethan Cross's work, but what I heard you saying was that basically in that moment when the feelings are going down, that you have a level, you, you bring it into your awareness, you get conscious to it, you're aware of it, and then you have a, an inquiry. So I'm curious if you can give us or if you have even your own process too. this doesn't have to be um, peer reviewed research, but even just your personal experience, what's your favorite kind of couple of question rundown for yourself as something shows up? I, I love things like this, especially from scientists like yourself and Alan, because these are the types of things that really help science to change his life, right? <laughs> well, um, yeah, and it's a great question. No I, I, sorry. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm hesitant. I, I had a recent experience that was pretty difficult, and, and I don't want to... Um, to rival Matt for this story of the evening. Um, but um, the, the questions that I often ask myself really are the mindset. I think I'm a basically optimistic sort of can do person. I don't, you know, I, I always feel like I can solve the problem. Just tell me, there's a great quote from Einstein. Um, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, I could, if you, if you give me an hour to solve a problem, I need. I can solve it, but I need the first 50, 55 minutes to to figure out what the question is. Once I have the question, I'll solve the problem. And I think it's a little bit like that, where you just say, "Okay, um, I can do this." You know what what's happening? I can do this. You know, I, I'm pretty good at solving things. And you know, what, so what is it? The challenge? What is it that I need to focus on? And so I, I mean, those are questions. You know, that there are there there. Um, things you can say to yourself for this mindset idea, but it's a, a more broader uh, idea. But for the sequence, it's really what's happening to me. What do I need to do? What am I able to do? And is it working? Those those simple mm-hmm. questions, I mean, I find myself doing that all the time in my own life, With, whether it be going down to the laundry room and finding my the laundry machine isn't taking my credit card. You know, I live in a building with the laundry or, you know, um, Learning the other day, I went down to the laundry and I went back home and my the door was locked. And no. you know, oh, I, no. I texted my wife, "Where are you?" And she said, "Oh, I went to vote. I'm sorry, didn't you know?" And, and so you know, and then I said, "Okay, what do I do? I could be really upset right now because I'm standing in the in the in the hallway of my building barefoot with my laundry. You know, um, I did have my mask, luckily. Um, but you know, then you think, okay, what do I need to do here?" You know, and you go through the steps and that's a that's a concrete problem. But, you know, you can use these same steps in that way. And I think we do. Again, we just don't know we do. And it just really helps to, you know, it's very useful to, to think about these explicitly and, you know, realize this is 
typically what I might do, but sometimes I, sometimes I'm anxious and I'm not thinking clearly, which is actually what we've, we, we learned clinically from various colleagues of mine work with, uh, with, uh, really high stress, um, high adversity situations, like medical problems or, you know, in, in the, in the hospitals. And, um, they've, they try to walk people through these stages and these, these, these sequence that I described. And, and sometimes people say, well, I, I don't ha- I can't do anything else. I don't know how to do anything else. And when we're feeling anxious, that's what it feels like. I don't know how to do anything else. I but love you the can idea. Begin to think about it. I love the idea, like, um, and this is a million years ago from a therapist actually shared this with me, but what I really, there's this beautiful moment where you realize you're in one of your patterns and it's this thing where she was like, if you notice these things happening, you're doing the thing, you're doing that thing you do. And if you can just muster the ability to say, oh my God, I'm doing the thing. Okay. Now what do I do? That's the strategic thing you're talking about. I love the idea ask yourself those questions. What's going on? You know, it's nice to think, okay, pull out the card and just follow the thing versus like having to put alone in that moment. Cause of course the beautiful thing about emotion is we all got the same ones and we all go through our patterns with them. So there's like the promise of if you can just realize that one thing, then you can change your behavior. It's exciting. Yeah. And I've never (laughs) been in a situation Yet, in my own personal life, where it, it wasn't helpful to go through that little set of questions. And I think in our research, we find that most people are, in fact, flexible. They can do these things. They measure them. And, you know, I was relieved when we found that because I built a lot of arguments on that finding. And I was kind of <laughs> hoping. And, you know, my, one of my students did the research so, you know, to keep my hands off it so I didn't bias the results in any way. Um, but if most people are flexible then the question is, do they know they're flexible? You know, mm. I think most people don't. When I give public talks on this, people often say, so what is it again? You know, <laughs> without how, realizing. Oh. I was going to ask, how much do you attribute, because you obviously have like, a, you have your your patterns and you have your your procedure and your process and your questions that you ask and, and you're very comfortable in this space. How much do you attribute that comfort and the place that you're at to working on it being cognizant of it and putting an effort versus how much you were born with, because just your story outside of your professional career is a remarkable story in the way that you set out into the world. I I forget what interview I was watching. And you said when you were 10, you started sleeping without a pillow to prepare yourself for the future to sleep in fields without a pillow. And so you strike me as someone that's always (laughs) had the, I can do this attitude, but that's just my perception from stories i've heard did you always have it did you have to work on it and did you have to work on it it's at an early age at 10 were you thinking of these things i I wish i could answer that question conclusively Mm -hmm. i mean the reason my my earlier life was actually filled with a lot of difficulty and Mm -hmm. um in my own in my home my my father was a was a very um it's a long story He, he he his parents were sicilian immigrants and he grew up really without with almost no education and had a family to support but he was somewhat overwhelmed with uh, the stress of trying to support that family without an education. And he had uh, several heart attacks. And I knew, I think I picked up intuitively that he had regretted that he never traveled. And I thought for some reason, but I mean, I, that's, that's a sort of a post hoc explanation, but um, may, I may or may not have had that, um, that those, uh, 
built in in a way, yeah. that, you know. But in the book, I tell the story of a, of a guy. He be- I begin the book with him and end the book with him, and he pops up throughout, among other people I tell the stories of. And he was had a horrific accident. He was run over by a sanitation truck, a garbage truck. And just crushed his all the wheels, Awful. you know. The, those things weigh twenty five tons mm. when they're oh. filled. And then he had other things happen to him along the way. There were all kinds of secondary because his body was essentially rebuilt, and he had all kinds of secondary, um, you know, health consequences that made his life extremely difficult. But he showed this. He showed flexibility, as I've described it, in coping with those things. But it, he had no idea he was doing that. And at some point, I think, when the other mounting difficulties hit his life, he had to figure out what it was he was doing. Um, the first chapter of the book, or the, I guess it's the the, the the introduction, is why was I doing okay? Which he asked himself when he mm-hmm. first recovered from the accident. Why was I doing okay? And he didn't know. And he wanted to know. And I think it w- was a question he may or may not have answered until he had more things pile up on it. And he really had to find some answers. And he gradually worked his way to understand flexibility. And, and he uses it now, you know, routinely. Now, I also know him and I have no doubt along the way he's learned what I do. And he's, he's actually worked with me at one point. But I think he, he already had done this, you know, Without knowing it, and, he, and I, I think the, the bottom line is he had to learn it. He had to figure it out, like because he he knew more was coming down the road, and he needed to figure out how mm-hmm. he was going to get through it. Um, but I, you know, I think I, I just think to put a, a finer point on it, there isn't there. It's possible for everybody to learn these things mm-hmm. because, as we seen, as I mentioned before, mm-hmm. most most people do it already. Most people know yeah. it already. With it, without most people can do these behaviors without knowing. Yeah. For sure. Um, <clears throat> we're coming into the home stretch. We got a couple of minutes left here, but there was one thing I, that I also really wanted to tackle. So I'm sorry if this is too hard of a pivot here, but um, part of my uh, reluctance, you know, in retrospect, like looking back and uh, with hindsight, I understand this now. Part of my reluctance to accept that I was having panic attacks at the time was um, was part of like this reaction to the the trendiness of anxiety and my perception of it becoming this kind of like catch all for the world's woes. But uh, even if it is trendy, I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing because more people talking about it certainly has to be better than people ignoring it, right? You want more awareness so we don't go back to the days of enemas and exorcisms. So it's like, okay, maybe the trendiness thing isn't a bad thing, but I'm only thinking that now I got lost in this and I was like, let me ask smart people. Uh, what are the, what is the group's <laughs> thoughts here? Has it become trendy? And if so, is that a bad thing? I mean, I would say that the way that it's studied clinically um, and I think George and I kind of agree here and the way it's assessed is, is really, really broad. And, and that sort of has led to this um, classification of people having anxiety when, you know, in fact, the, the survey asks, the, the surveys that are typically used ask not just about you know, the feeling of anxiety, but, you know, are you content? And that has to do with positive emotion and all these other things. And then the things that we classify as anxiety disorders may be things that involve a lot of emotions other than anxiety. So, I mean, there's, there's generalized anxiety disorder, um, but then there's also phobias, which are classified as anxiety disorders. And I think those really involve fear. And then 
uh, you know, potentially social anxiety disorder may involve more embarrassment and OCD may involve disgust as well. So there's other emotions involved. So I think there would be a lot of value in dissecting these things. Um, in terms of, you know, what do anxiety drugs do? What are the treatments? If you're, if you're treating things with drugs, <laughs> it is sort of a big mallet that you can crush a lot of things yeah. with. <laughs> you can lower your heart rate, you know, you can take beta blockers and, and so forth. And, and those will physiologically work at reducing some of the physiological symptoms of the anxiety, but, uh, but they, but they, they don't really, I, I don't think tackle some of the root causes, um, which have to do with, you know, the emotional appraisals that cause the anxiety some of the extrinsic factors in our society, um, separate yourself from social media, maybe, or separate yourself from, um, the things that are preventing you from sleeping properly, or, you know, if you're smoking, that might be causing anxiety. Uh, yeah. so there, there's a lot of, uh, other factors to consider. And when you, when you probably, when you piece apart all the different symptoms, you'll, you'll be able to start to tackle what the underlying causes are. That's my opinion. Got it. I'm, that is so fascinating, Alan, what you, especially the part when you talked about how it's almost like, um, and again, I'm sort of pairing this with what George was sharing around strategies. It's like your ability to say, okay, anxiety is here, go through the questions, but then also it's like anxiety is here. What other emotions are here? How do I look in, you know, how do I have a little more granularity here? It's why your maps are so amazing is they, they show what's going on around it. And even for that particular person, it's like if anxiety is present and embarrassment is present, that's a clue to the strategy that's going to serve me best in this moment. And I, it makes me think of um, this beautiful roomy quote, which um, is that, the pains and feelings that you have are sent to you as messengers from the beyond, like listen to them closely, they're messengers from the beyond. And I just love this idea that we if we're tuning in in that inquiry way, that the, the messages are clear and then knowing how to support yourself can also be clear just with that little process. I'm also, because we have two incredible scientific minds here, just as a nerd candy moment, I'm curious, um, of your studies, what is your like favorite aha? It can be recent. It can be old. I'm just so curious. A moment where a light went on for you because you maybe saw how it could practically live or just like, George, you were saying that you had this epiphany because you kind of had this quantum mechanics relativity moment where they your theories started to come together. So I just have to ask. I'm, the, the nerd in me is like, ooh. <laughs> Um, I don't know if I can answer that um, because I don't think I have enough short-term memory left <laughs> to, um, to call to mind. But, you know, I do, I do think that the focus, that there can be too much focus on anxiety and that the trendiness of it, I think, worries me. For example, we have these, you know, we have these things in the general population of trigger warnings and you hear this word all the time, trauma-informed. And I think those are those are really dangerous trends because they they kind of communicate that everybody's harboring vulnerabilities, and I think that underestimates how strong people are and how capable people are when bad things happen. Uh, for example, trigger warnings. This is um, uh, this is not a, exactly a, a response to Danielle's. Uh, question about aha moments, but Rich McNally uh, was one of my favorite researchers at Harvard, did a, a studies on trigger warnings, and he basically found that when you, when you give people trigger warnings, you know, controlled design compared to not, it actually makes people more anxious than not getting hmm. them. 
because it tells people, well, I'm going to show you something that's going to make you really anxious. And, um, and you know, it, it, and it actually does that. And I, and I think that the whole idea of trauma-informed, again, it suggests to people that there's hidden things that are, that are going to lurk up, you know. Um, and I just did, recently did an interview with a British newspaper, and they asked me, so I think it was Prince Andrew. I get them confused. I get those confused, the princes. But I think it was <laughs> Prince Andrew who had quoted as saying that, that most people are carrying around wounds and trauma wounds and lost wounds. And so they asked me what I thought of it. I said, that's just wrong. You know, people go through things, but most people go through them and they're, they move on and they don't carry those wounds with them. They might carry the memory, they might carry the, 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 the lessons they learned and the sense that they got through it. But I don't think they're carrying these open wounds with them, these vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, some people are who've been really yeah. at a hard time. But so I think there, this preoccupation with the societal level is, is not the healthiest thing right now. Got it. Alan, you look like you're about to say something. Or are you disagreeing? I, I, no, I agree 100%. <laughs> <laughs> um, the funny thing about anxiety is it's one of the emotions that when you when you think too much about anxiety, it actually makes you anxious. <laughs> I think during this podcast, I've been more anxious than in any other podcast. That I've done. <laughs> oh, Alan, I'm so sorry. I didn't Don't mean to do that. Me. I, like I, I began talking about displacement behaviors, and then the whole time I've been like, uh, <laughs> for those people just listening, you can't tell, but Alan has sweat through three shirts already. We haven't mentioned it, but it's it's happened so <laughs> so in that way the preoccupation with anxiety could be a little bit dangerous i mean it might be mm. causing people anxiety I, yeah. I honestly think that might be true yeah. um there's also yeah i mean thinking of everything as one emotion um i think also really makes people's responses to the emotion kind of one-dimensional so everything right. is about reducing the anxiety um, well, if you're embarrassed, maybe it's about, you know, sort of responding to a social situation. If you're disgusted, maybe it's mm -hmm. about thinking about what it yeah. is that's really grossing you out. You know, maybe, maybe if you reappraise what it is that's causing the more specific emotions, you can come, you can combat them more easily. If you just kind of put them all in the anxiety bin, then mm. you're, you're just going to say you need drugs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so I think, I think that that's another dangerous thing about it. Um, in terms of uh, the studies that I think have um, influenced my thinking recently, um, I mean, I do all my work on humans, um, and so I love reading the animal literature. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's always where we end off anyway. I was going to say, yeah, sorry, just to, <laughs> just to give George some background. I don't know how I did this, but I've made it so, I, at this point, I'd say it's a segment. We pretty much land on uh, every episode I ask Alan, even though this is not his area of expertise, but he does know a lot about it. I ask him about uh, uh, things we know scientifically of, of observing the emotion in question within the animal kingdom. Um, yeah. and, and so I see you've already, you've instinctively segued there for us, Alan. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but we've talked a little bit about that, but I didn't mean to cut you off, but just to provide context as to why that was so funny to all of us is because somehow we always end up here. So as you were saying, you like reading the literature, uh, yeah, as you were saying. Yes. In, in the animal literature, things are a little bit easier to study when it comes to like ecological behavior. So you can always observe animals in their actual setting um, and undergoing these behaviors in the human literature, we're kind of tempted to put the people in an fMRI scanner where there's going to be no social interaction. You don't see the mm. social functions of these behaviors. 
Um, in animals, I think one of the, some of the more interesting studies on anxiety and on the displacement behaviors that they associate with is that they tend, it tends to happen when people are intimidated um, in a social context when the alpha male goes and intimidates somebody or when there's a dispute over food and somebody loses. And then what happens is there's an animal in the corner, you know, usually a primate, uh, exhibiting displacement behaviors. And particularly with apes, and I think to some extent with primates as well, you then see another ape come over and comfort them. Mm. And then the displacement behaviors go away. And when I read a lot of the animal literature, it, I, you know, it focuses often on the social functions of emotions. And oftentimes it's in terms of specific behaviors that have clear parallels in humans. But first they talk about the behaviors, displacement behaviors. Some monkey comes and comforts, com comforts the other monkey. Like these are really valuable things. And then um, they talk about parallels between those behaviors and their neural correlates and the neural correlates of the feelings that we have that we associate with those behaviors in humans to say, look, you were, you were not just saying that this animal is feeling the way the human does when it's doing something similar, because that would be sort of anthropomorphizing that mm -hmm. behavior. It's also the case that what's going on in their brain is similar to what's going on in human brains when we feel anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I think those kinds of studies are really, really interesting to read. And I, I follow that literature pretty closely. Yeah. Um, there's a similar literature on, on mice, actually. And when mice are distressed, other mice come over and kind of help them naturally. And the other mice exhibit um, signs of kind of empathic distress, wow. which is also um, very wow. interesting. That is very interesting. Well. Yeah. When uh, you shut off the expression of the distress by the mouse, then the other mouse doesn't come over too. So like if you lock this mouse in a cage and it's, it's doing the, the distress behaviors, the other mouse comes over and unlocks it because it's only locked from the outside. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you turn off the expression, the mouse doesn't help. So I think that expressions really have this critical social function. Um, and so thinking about those and expressions in that context is really important. And it's a good way to think about emotions having an important social function. Yeah. The, the, idea that sadness is a, the idea that sadness is a beacon. That's, that's a beautiful thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would it be okay? Um, would it be okay, Tamiz, if I add something to what to what Alan was describing? Please do. Okay. Absolutely. So I I think that's absolutely fascinating, Alan. And thanks a lot for bringing that up. Um, so I, I have a comment that I think addresses the animal literature and also um, Danielle's question, which um, was actually a study I was in several studies I was involved in related to animals. Now I don't have animals in my lab. And I have not gotten involved in any previous animal research. Usually, I don't like to to be in studies where animals are killed. I understand that that's that's you know a part of animal research, but um, literally every time I've seen animal researchers present something, I've asked them, "Well, you know, does this all happen to all the, the, the animals? Usually, it's rodents. Does this happen to all of them? So, for example, like social defeat, where you can make a a mouse, you know, cower and, and stops stop exploring by, by putting a big mouse in there that beats them up on a regular basis. And, you know, and that's called social defeat. There's also fear extinction and these classic paradigms. Social defeat is actually really interesting just that they can do it. But mm -hmm. I, I, I really once asked a panel of animal researchers, what about variation in these behaviors? Or I study individual differences in humans. Do you get, do all, all rodents, you know, show this pattern? And they looked at each other and said, you know, I don't know. And um, <laughs> I, someone came up to me actually after the panel was over and, and said, you know, I, I, I do social defeat research and there are animals who don't show this. And I said, how many? And they said, I don't know. <laughs> so, so we we collaborated with Joe Ledoux down at NYU. He's in the same city, 
that we have enormous respect for Joe Ledoux, Joseph Ledoux. And he had these rodents who were, you know, running through fear extinction trials, classic, you know, Psych 101 kind of a thing. And, and we decided to look at the individual differences. And this was the aha moment. We found that there were very clear individual differences. And the, most of these rats, they were, they were not subway rats which I don't know what they would do. They'd probably just break out and, you know, steal the pizza. I don't know. But these were these are standard genetically homogenous laboratory rats. And they um, they most of them extinguished fear in this thing. You know, they, they matched them with a tone and an electric shock on the first day. And the second day, they, get, they only get the sound and they freeze, which is their defensive behavior. And that's the sort of the main measure of this sort of fear of behavior. Most of them got, got, you know, extinguished it. They stopped doing it really quickly, whereas the average shows it takes much longer. So the majority, just like in humans, you know, a simple kind of behavior. And then some showed this more gradual response, and then some never stopped freezing the, mm. the entire experiment. And that was remarkably, like the overlap with human patterns is remarkable, the variation. And We've, it's been replicated now four or five times in other studies that my, my, my student and now absolutely brilliant researcher, Isaac Gallitzer-Levy, um, has gone on to do all kinds of wonderful computational things. He's replicated this in a number of different studies. So it's really kind of a, that was for me an aha moment that, wow, animals show these same patterns that we do. They don't know it either. <laughs> so we're on the playing field as a level. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I would almost say kill two birds at one stone. That's a terrible expression to use right now. But, uh, yeah. but, you, uh, but <laughs> checking off multiple boxes with one stone. Yeah. You've got a nest full of, of birds who are in a, an adverse moment right now if you killed one of them. Exactly. Um, no birds were harmed in the cobbling together of that last sentence. Uh, but I do, unfortunately, got to wrap things up um, before we get out of here. A massive massive thank you uh to our guest george uh, bonanno for being here with us and being so generous with your time sir it has been amazing to have you here and share your experience your insights and your thoughts uh sincerely sincerely appreciate no, it thank been, you it's been my pleasure you're a delightful awesome. bunch uh, friendly. Well, that's so kind of you. Thank you, sir. Friendly you. reminder to those listening and watching out there, check out his latest book, The End of Trauma, How the New Science of Resilience is Changing How We Think About PTSD. Like I said, it's available right now where all books are sold. Thank you to my co-hosts and friends, Danielle and Alan, for being by my side. Couldn't do it without you. Uh, and to those listening, thank you uh, for listening. <laughs> and hey, if you enjoyed hanging out with us today, help spread the word. Give us a nice little review. Throw a couple of stars our way. You don't have to do any of these things, but it'd be nice if you did. Uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you have any questions you'd like answered, feel free to email us at thefeelingslab at hume.ai. We'll put that right down here for you, thefeelingslab at hume.ai. Farewell for now from all of us here at The Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody. Stay safe out there. <laughs>